So open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter number 5. We've been uh, studying on these Wednesday nights about the rewards that we hope to receive when we get to heaven. Now remember this, heaven, we don't go to heaven based on how good we are. We go to heaven based on our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You go to heaven being saved. Adrian Rogers used to say that heaven is not a reward for the righteous. Heaven is a gift for the guilty. And so we go to heaven by admitting our guilt, confessing our sins, asking Jesus to forgive us and to save us. When we do that, we're saved. And that means when we die, we go to heaven. So that's how you get saved and that's how you end up in heaven. Having said that, When we get to heaven, God will still be passing out rewards to those Christians who have been faithful to Him, who have served Him well. And we've been studying on these Wednesday nights some of those those crowns. The first crown we studied, it was called the victor's crown. in, In the Scripture, it's called the imperishable crown. It's a crown that we get, we hope to get when we get to heaven, if we have been faithful in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, faithful in our Bible reading, faithful in our prayer life, faithful in our discipline, faithful in trying not to sin. We've lived a disciplined life, not a perfect life, but we've tried to live our lives in such a way that we're close to God and far from sin. And none of us does that perfectly. Sometimes we're far from God and close to sin. But when we get convicted of that, we have to repent and come back to God and ask Him to forgive us, and He always does. And so if we've done that, we'll get that crown. We spent two Wednesday nights talking about a crown called the crown of rejoicing or the soul winner's crown. That's the crown that people will receive if they have faithfully tried their best to share Jesus Christ with others. And I'm not going to re-preach that tonight, but I spent a lot of time talking about sometimes we're supposed to plant a seed, sometimes we're supposed to harvest and tell people how to be saved. But we have to know which, when, when do we do which. Sometimes it's just more appropriate to be kind to somebody or to remind somebody that God loves them than it is to actually try to lead them to faith in Christ. You have to discern where the Holy Spirit's working. And that's the soul winner's crown or the crown of rejoicing. Last week, we talked about another crown in heaven, and that is the crown of life. And that's the crown that people will receive when they get to heaven if they have been faithful to God during hard times. We all go through challenges and difficulties and hard times. And so if we have been faithful to God during those situations, we we very possibly will receive that crown. Now tonight, the crown we're thinking about is the crown of glory. And when we read this passage in 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to see that in its context, this crown appears to be uh, for those that we would call pastors, church leaders, Christian leaders, those who are shepherding Uh, other Christians. So I want to say that is the context, but after we read it, I think you'll agree with me that there may be a broader context to that tonight. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Peter says, the elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade 
away. And so Peter here is talking to those that we would call Christian leaders. Maybe they were a pastor. Maybe they were doing something else with the people of God. But they're shepherding that flock. And so that's who he's talking to. But I think if you'll think about this for a moment, if you, you say, John, this sermon doesn't apply to me. You ought to preach this one to yourself or get the staff together and talk about this. Well, we could, but I think it does apply to you. Because if you have a responsibility for someone else's spiritual well-being, isn't it true that you have the responsibility to shepherd them? Think about that. In the most basic sense, this would be your family. You're a parent. And so you're trying to raise your kids to know the Lord and to do what's right in their life. And so they're your flock. And so you would shepherd them very much like a pastor might shepherd a church. Maybe you're a Sunday school teacher or you lead a connection group. And so you say, well, I'm not a pastor of the church, but now I do teach a class or I do direct a group or I do something at the church. Well, think of it like this. Isn't there a sense in which those people that you're teaching, I mean, what's the difference? So you have one flock, and maybe we have another flock, but that's your flock. And so if you're responsible and you take that seriously, I even think about our cafe. And, uh, you know, for years and years, Teresa Reynolds ran our cafe, and then she and Alan, they started traveling the country and have kind of moved away. And so God brought Cassie Hare and that Cassie and her husband Andrew, faithful members of our church, and for the last couple of years, Cassie has been heading up the cafe and doing an excellent job. But she has a group of people who work in the cafe with her, and she not only has those people, but she has most all the church at one time or another comes through the cafe to get a cup of coffee or to get something to eat. Isn't there a sense in which she is supposed to shepherd that group. And, I mean, they're under her leadership. So what I'm saying is you have to make this very personal and to say, okay, it's not just maybe for pastors or for, quote, church staff people. It's for anybody who has been entrusted with the spiritual well-being of somebody else. And so that's what I want us to think about. And if we're faithful with that responsibility, then at the end, God will give us this particular crown, and it's called the crown of glory. Now, there are two things I want to say tonight that I think will help us as we think about pursuing this crown and being faithful. The first thing that we have to do if we're going to get this crown is to identify our flock. Who is your flock? Well, like for me tonight, you are my flock. How does that sound? I'm just calling you an animal. I just called you a sheep right now. But there's a sense in which you are. And so in this moment that we're together, I'm, I'm supposed to be shepherding you for these 30 minutes of teaching the Bible. But you have to identify who your flock is, your children, your grandchildren, your Sunday school class, uh, any, whatever it might be, maybe where you work. You say, John, I don't even have a, a position like that at the church. Well, think about your job. Are you in a position of management? Do you have people under you? You say, well, no, I don't have that. Seems like at my job, everybody's over me, okay? Well, you're not shepherding them then as far as being their supervisor, but I still think that there would be application for you in that you could influence them for good and for God. That you, in a sense, could be a shepherd to them. Now, we've all had this experience in life. Maybe you go to, uh, to a particular place. Maybe it is your job. And there you are every day. And people know you're a Christian. And yet, you're not there to preach to them. You're not there to jam the Bible down their throat. You're there to do their job. And yet, they know about your faith. 
And so you have to think of it like this. As the months and years pass, and they are hopefully seeing Christ in you, you're going to have opportunities to invite them to church, to say something about God, to pray with them, and to shepherd, in a sense, to shepherd the people that you work with. Again, you're not over them. You're equal, or maybe even at work, they're over you. But from a spiritual perspective, you could have a positive influence on them, and you could shepherd them. Now, look back in verse number 2, because I think this is very interesting. Peter says this. He said, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. So, it's a very specific, you can't shepherd the world. And I'll give you this illustration. To It, it applies to me, but maybe you can think of when I say this, you can make something apply to you. I would say back in about 2007, 2008, 2009, of course, as a minister, we're in and out of funeral homes doing services for people in the church. And we, during that process, you get to know the people who are running the funeral homes. Well, I got to be friends with people at all the funeral homes around here, and they started calling me, along with other ministers, when they would meet with a family who didn't have a minister. And they would say, John, this family has died. They don't go to church anywhere. Is, is it possible for you to do the funeral on Thursday afternoon at 2 o'clock? Well, if it was where I was free, many times, not all the time, but many times I would say, yes, I'll do that. And, you know, I did that for about six or seven years fairly regularly. And I viewed that, and I rightly viewed that, as a wonderful opportunity to take the gospel beyond the walls of the church, to get out there and to try to minister to people who don't have a church home. I mean, if you're a minister, that is a tremendous opportunity to do what we're encouraging all of us to do, to get the gospel beyond the walls of the church. But as the years went by, uh, I was doing more and more of that. And so, like, in my mind, I would say, well, if I'm going to be gone from First Baptist or not doing my First Baptist, quote, First Baptist work from 2 to 4 to do a funeral for somebody else, I will just, when I get home tonight, from 6 to 8, whatever I would have done from 2 to 4, I'll do it from 6 to 8. And so I did that for a good number of years, and to be honest with you, enjoyed it, felt like God had opened those doors for me, and I do not regret it one bit. But I got to a place in my life where as my responsibilities at the church increased, and I was trying to do other things uh, that I hadn't done before, as far as doing these little booklets and just other things with the church, that I felt like I couldn't maintain doing all those funerals because I just couldn't, you just can't work that many hours in a day. But I really struggled with it because I thought, God, I thought that this was a door you had opened for me, and now I'm feeling like maybe I can't keep doing this. And it was a real struggle. I probably tried to figure that out for about a year, a year and a half. God, what should I do when a funeral home calls and it's somebody that doesn't have a church and they're asking me to do the funeral? And one day God led me to verse number 2. I want you to look at it again. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. And it was like God said to me, John, you can't, minister, you can't minister to the whole world. As much as you like that, I love preaching, and I would rather preach than, I don't like to play golf, I would rather preach than do just about anything. And so, I enjoyed that, but it was like God said, you're to a point now, you can't, you can't do it all, so shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Now, that doesn't mean I never do a service 
for a non-church person. Dan Sampson, a former minister of music at First Baptist Pasadena, now lives in Dallas, was in town a few months ago, and my dad and I got to spend some time with him. And, and on this particular Saturday afternoon, it was a Saturday, we had done a funeral together, and Dan was in my office about 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. We were just talking. He was going to go back to Dallas. And my phone rang. And it was a funeral home right up the road from here. And they, the, the funeral director said, John, I hate to call you, and this is very short notice. He said, all the years I've been doing funerals, I've never done this. He said, but we have a family up here, and the funeral is going to start in like 20 or 30 minutes. And he said, the minister who was supposed to show up to do this uh, got his days mixed up, and he can't be here. The family's here. The people are here. The funeral starts in 20 or 30 minutes. Is there any way that you could do it? Well, I'm sitting there, just come out of one, another funeral, and I'm in my suit and tie talking to Dan, and uh, I, hung, I, I, said, I said, yes, I'll do it. And I said, Dan, and I told him that story. And he said, John, he said, when we surrender to the ministry, this is what we signed up for. You get up there, I'm going to go back to Dallas, you go do that funeral. He said, you know, sometimes, and we talked, he was walking to the car. He said, sometimes you can do it, sometimes you can't. You have to let God lead you. Now, that's how this verse applies to me. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. Don't, you, don't try to do more than you can do, because as you get a little bit older and you have more responsibilities, you just can't keep that up. Now, you have to apply that to your life. Who is the flock that is among you? Children? co-workers, Sunday school class, and you have to identify your flock because you're never going to know, you're never going to be a good shepherd if you've not identified who your flock is. And so that's so very important. Now, the second thing we have to do after we have identified our flock, and that is invest in your flock. Here's your people. This is your class. This is your kids. These are your grandkids. This is your family. You've identified them as your flock, okay? Now, what are you going to do? You're going to invest in your flock. You're going to say, this is my target. Not that I never help anybody else that's outside of my target, but I can't minister to the world, can't save the world, can't do that, but I can minister to the ones that God has entrusted to my care. Now, let me mention three things that we need to do with those who have been entrusted to our care. And I think this is very important. If you're a pastor, it's important. If you're a Sunday school teacher, it's important. If you're a parent or grandparent, it's important. Number one thing, lead them. Lead them. That is the primary thing that a shepherd does with his sheep. He leads the sheep. The 23rd Psalm, David's talking about how God, the Lord, is my shepherd. He said, I shall not want. He leads me beside the still waters. He's leading those sheep, uh, in, in David's analogy there, to places where they can drink water and where they can rest and lay down in the, in the green pastures. And so we want to lead, uh, lead the sheep. Notice that what it says in verse number 3. This is a tremendous verse too. Because at the end of verse 3, notice how we're supposed to lead them. He said, being examples to the flock. And so the best way to lead the flock is not by jamming the Bible down their throat. Or even me as a preacher. And, and a big part of what we do is preaching the Bible. And as it should be. But also here it says, being an example. To try our best to be an example to those who have been entrusted to our care. And I think that is, that is so very, very important. I've, I've learned this about leadership. And I don't know if I've ever heard anybody say it quite like this, but I, I do think this is very true. The most important thing about being a good leader is learning to be a good follower. To be a good follower, first of all, to those who are in authority over you, 
But primarily, I'm talking about being a good follower of God. So you're a shepherd of some kind, and you're trying to lead your flock. Okay, what's the most important thing you can do to lead your flock? Well, we've already read that the first thing is you have to be a good example to the flock. I mean, you can't be telling them one thing and living a totally different type of lifestyle. So you want to be a good example. Well, how are you going to be a good example? By following God. In other words, I can't lead in my responsibility at First Baptist. I... I can't lead anybody if I'm not first following God. If I'm following God, then I should be able to lead somebody else because I'm just going in the direction I perceive God leading me to go. And so we have to learn to be a good follower. That's the most important thing. As, as a leader, if you are following the Lord, if you are trying to follow the Lord, if your children and grandchildren see in you, not perfection, but they see in your heart somebody who's trying to follow God, well, that, that is a powerful thing. That is much more powerful than your quoting scripture or giving them a sermon outline or saying we ought to go to church. No, you're trying to follow God. Now, they're going to see you mess up, but part of being a good example is when you mess up, you say, hey, I messed up. I'm sorry. I I did something wrong. Please forgive me. Well, that's endearing to them because you're being an example and you're showing them what to do when they mess up. And so, it's very important as we lead that we first become a good follower. Follow God first and then uh, lead. I was talking one time, I, this has been years ago, I was at, working out one night, and I, or one morning, I was talking to a guy about his church. He goes to a, went to another church in the area, and he said this about his pastor. He said, I don't know where our pastor is leading us, but I'm going to follow him. And I first thought, well, you're a better man than I am, because I'd want to know where the guy's going. But I think the spirit that that man was saying that was, we think our pastor is trying to lead us toward in the direction God wants us to go. So, I mean, that's all that guy. That's all that guy would say. But whoever you're following, make sure that that person is seeking to follow Jesus. And if if they're following Jesus, then 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 you'll be all right to try to follow them. And if you're following Jesus, those entrusted to your care will be all right following you. So we want to lead them. The second thing we want to do is feed them. Isn't that what a shepherd does with his sheep? He doesn't just lead them from point A to point B, but he feeds them. That's his responsibility. If he didn't feed them, they would die. And so that's why it's so important that that whoever is entrusted to our care, in whatever way that is appropriate, we are feeding them. We are giving them what they need spiritually. Now, in a setting like this, we're thinking about let's open up the Bible and somebody who is prepared and studied, teach me the Bible. Okay, well, that, that is how this is. But like at home, for example, you wouldn't want to go home tonight or at breakfast tomorrow and uh, preach a sermon to your kids or tonight before they go to bed. But to somehow to try to find ways to maybe to have a family devotional time, to maybe pray with your family before you go to bed, maybe in the morning uh, at breakfast, if, you're, if your family has a breakfast time, and I know mornings, especially if you've got kids, it's crazy and it's early and everybody's in a hurry. But if you, could ha- if you do have a meal together, maybe you could just have a little prayer time or maybe you could have a Bible on the table and say, hey, why, don't some- why doesn't somebody, one of the kids, open it up and read the proverb of the day. Or if not the whole proverb, read one verse of the proverb of the day. 
Again, Adrian Rogers used to do that with their family. They would just at breakfast, open up and somebody read the proverb of the day. When, we, when my brother and I were coming up, my parents did similar things like that. We'd had a little, not a sermon, not even, I mean, we're talking about two or three minutes, maybe four minutes, but something quick. And when we were coming up at night before we went to bed, had a little family devotional. It wasn't long. And uh, I think that's, that's important. I don't think. I think sometimes well-meaning parents trying to have a family devotional, you drag that thing out for 30 or 40 minutes, and it may work in reverse. The kids may resent what you're trying to do. But if you just have a little prayer at the end of the day or just say, hey, here's what our family's going through right now. Why don't we pray about that and commit that to God and, and maybe read a verse or two out of the Bible? That would be a good thing. So we want to feed them. Look for opportunities, even at work. Uh, when, when something comes up, look for an opportunity to somehow, if, if, if it's appropriate, and if you feel the leadership of God, to somehow look for an opportunity to plant a seed from the Bible, a seed of hope, a seed of encouragement, a seed of truth, uh, a, a promise from the Bible if someone's sick. Uh, and I, I know I had the opportunity this the other day. I was talking to a friend. Uh, no, I talked to him, and we were emailing. And uh, I, when I emailed him, I just put a little Scripture verse in there. Uh, about healing and about how God uh, is a healer and we trust Him for our healing. And so we're just looking for little opportunities to feed and just drop nuggets as best we can. And then I think the third and the main, uh, not the main thing, but another, another important thing that the shepherd does for his sheep is to protect them. The 23rd Psalm, he's got his rod and he's got his staff. Why does he have those things? Well, uh, if he, on that rod, if a, if a bear or a, some wild animal is sure to come toward those sheep, He's going to use that rod, and he's going to fight them off. And so whoever has been entrusted to our care, uh, you, you have a responsibility to protect the flock. I mean, growing up in a pastor's home and being on this church staff for 20, nearly 25 years myself, I've seen, I've seen the necessity of this in a church setting. Sometimes somebody will come in a church, or maybe they've been in a church, and they're trying to uh, do something that would be detrimental to the spiritual well-being of others. Maybe they're teaching something in a class that's, her that's heretical. Or maybe they're, they're trying to do, stir something up that would be not good for the people. Well, if you're going to be the leader, you've got to somehow ad address that situation and try to protect the flock. And so certainly in our homes, we would have to do that. I can remember, I was, I was trying to think of an example. When I was a little kid growing up and I was the... Uh, flock, my brother and I and my parents' home, they had all kind of little things in place to try, to, to try their best to protect us. There were television shows that we weren't allowed to watch growing up, and uh, I was thinking about those just before the sermon. Uh, one of those shows, this was back, I guess, in the late 70s, early 80s, you might remember Three's Company. You remember that show? He had uh, the three who lived together, a guy and the two girls. Now, today, I'll say that would probably be the cleanest show on television. But back then, we weren't allowed to watch it. And I never will forget when I moved away to college how glad I was to watch Three's Company. I thought, finally, I can watch this show. But I felt a little bit guilty because I knew I wasn't supposed to even then. But we couldn't watch that show. We couldn't watch All in the Family because there were, uh, and, you know, they just, for whatever reason it was, they said, no, you don't need to be watching. Again, these shows now... You could almost put them on Daystar and TBN because compared to what... But I'm saying in that season of life, you're not watching this. You're not going to watch a show where you've got these things being said and these inferences being made, and so you can't, you can't watch those. So, hey, 
you have to make your own decision about that if you're a parent. That's, that's your decision, not for us to enforce what your rule would be. But you ought to think about what I'm saying tonight. If you've got kids growing up in this world, and the computer and the Internet and questions that, uh, that you would ask uh, as far as how old do the kids have to be before they can have a television in their own room? Uh, how old do the kids have to be before they can have a computer in their own room? Probably old enough to have their own house, right? I mean, they have to be out of your house, probably. You probably want to have that. Tom Gamble and I were talking about that. I said, Tom, when your kids were coming up, how did you do the, because when I was coming up, the computer deal, there, were, there weren't any. But I said, how did you do with your kids, you and Nikki, when those kids were growing up? He said, we had the computer in one open space in the house, and anybody want to get on the computer went to that space. You weren't going to be on the Internet in, you know, in the room by yourself, where you could just find all kind of stuff you don't need to be seeing. So you have to look at whoever your flock is, especially if it's your kids, and say, now, God, you have entrusted them to my care. I'm responsible for their spiritual well-being. And part of that is I'm supposed to lead them, but I can only lead them if I'm following you. And they need to see in me, not a perfect person, but they need to see in me somebody whose heart is to follow you. And, God, I've got to feed them. I've got to look for those, uh, what some have called teachable moments, so that I can just drop in nuggets of truth, and wisdom and encouragement uh, on their time schedule. It may not even be at a family devotional. It may be in, at midnight when they're wanting to talk. And so how can I try to play? How can I feed them in the way that they would receive that? And God, how can I protect them as far as you know, where they go and, and what they do? I know, again, when, when Joel and I were growing up, we never, we never had a curfew. And you say, well, what, what in the world is that? Never had a curfew. Well, I'll tell you, and I'm not saying it's bad if you put a curfew on your kids, but I, the reason we never had a curfew was they said to us, where are you going, and what time does it get over with? They didn't give us a license that said every Friday and Saturday night you can do in by midnight. We never had that freedom. We had, where are you going, and what, do you, what time does it get over with, and how long does it take to drive back home from there? Okay, there's your curfew right there. So, now I'm not saying if you put a curfew on your kids, that's wrong. I'm just saying... All I'm throwing out there is stuff to get in your head and make you think about in a world that has gone completely crazy. And what kids are being faced with to now, in, in today's world, okay, I was faced with things in my 20s, that early 20s when I was in college, I guess late teenage years, early 20s, when you kind of get out, you, you see, good night. So I, for the first time in my life, I saw things, you know, things, temptations and things and opportunities, good night, that kids 15, 20 years ago were being faced with in junior high and high school. Now, what kids were being faced with in junior high and high school, kids are being faced with in elementary school. And so, take that whole analogy I just gave. You've got kids in elementary school being exposed to things that we didn't even know were in the world until we were out of high, out of high school. And so, how in the world would anybody raise kids today without having some kind of parameters, some kind of boundaries, some kind of protective uh, things in place? Not that you can guarantee, not that you can just keep them sheltered their whole lives. But I tell you one thing: it'd be better to keep them sheltered as long as you can. And to keep them sheltered long enough so that when they do one day get older and out there on their own, at least they've 
they've matured and hopefully will make better decisions at 19, 20, 21, 22 than they would at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. And so whoever has been entrusted to your care, especially if it's children or grandchildren to a lesser extent, you don't have as much control maybe as you would when they were your actual children, but to look for those parameters, to look for those boundaries and to say, you know what, God, I want to do everything I can to protect those that have been entrusted to my care. And so, again, how do these crowns work? Well, one of these days when we all get to heaven and we stand before Jesus Christ and He does an inventory in our, of our lives, how we've lived and what, has been the, what have been the priorities of our lives. If He has seen in us a desire to take this shepherding part of life Seriously, identifying our flock, God, I can't minister to the world, but I can minister to those you've entrusted to my care, and then by investing in the flock, our time, our energy, our money, our presence, our presence is the main thing, just being there, that's the main thing you can invest, and then we say, God, show me how to lead them as I follow you, show me how to feed them, and show me how to protect them. I believe that on that judgment day, you will receive this crown from Jesus, the crown of glory that he will give out to all the faithful shepherds out there, whoever their flock may have been. Amen.